This is the Young Farmers Podcast. I'm Jessica Manley with the National Young Farmers Coalition, and today we bring you a conversation about the number one challenge facing young farmers today, access to land. Young Farmers Land Campaign Director Holly Ripon Butler talks with New York Times reporter Elizabeth Dunn, who wrote the piece, How Fairy Tale Farms Are Ruining Hudson Valley Agriculture. The article shows how young farmers and farmers of color across the country are losing land to wealthy buyers looking for second homes, and the unrealistic expectations that non-farming landowners can have when they lease their land to farmers. Access to quality, affordable farmland is the number one challenge that young and beginning farmers face in this country, and we are trying to change that. Young Farmers launched the One Million Acres for the Future campaign to transition land to the next generation of farmers through a historic investment in the 2023 Farm Bill. Young Farmers launched the One Million Acres for the Future campaign to transition land to the next generation through a historic investment in the 2023 Farm Bill. Liz and Holly talk more about the campaign and the land access challenge, but we invite you to join the campaign right now by texting LAND to 40649 or visiting youngfarmers.org slash land. Here are Liz and Holly. In reading this article, I think it was really emotional. I was surprised by my own reaction because I talk to farmers every day. I know about this issue, but um, really seeing it all laid out had a real impact on me. And that was something that I actually heard from other staff members at Young Farmers too. And I was just wondering if in the reporting that you did for this article and in writing it, yeah, did talking to these farmers have an emotional impact on you? And what was that experience like for you doing this reporting? Yeah, sure. So let me first, I guess, back up and kind of summarize the article for anybody who hasn't read it. The story that I wrote at the beginning of June for the New York Times was about the barriers that beginning farmers are facing in the Hudson Valley to accessing land. And specifically, it was looking at the role that wealthy weekenders, wealthy people buying homes in the Hudson Valley are having on beginning farmers. That shows up, first of all, in terms of land prices for young farmers trying to buy their own land. And that was not so surprising to me to hear that there's a lot of competition for buying land in the Hudson Valley and that it's gotten quite expensive. But the piece of the equation that I really didn't know about until I started reporting this story was that when those city landowners lease farmland to area farmers, the arrangement is not as seamless and as positive as you would think. Not only are these young farmers having a hard time buying their own land, but they're also having a really hard time trying to lease farmland from non-farming owners under terms that really work if you're a farmer. So in terms of the process of reporting it and talk, talking to farmers, I mean, this is the thing that I love about this job, about being a journalist, is it is really emotionally engaging to have these conversations. And, you know... I guess I'm always struck when I talk to farmers by how much they're up against and the fact that they continue to do this work anyway, more than any other, more than any other type of profession that I talk to people about. Farming is the one where I just think, oh my God, this is yeoman's work. And it's it's amazing that more people aren't quitting, especially young people who are making an active choice every day to continue to do it. And I think the the sort of challenge as a journalist is listening to these conversations with farmers and 
feeling really empathetic, but at the same time, knowing that it's your job to be objective as, as much as you get off the phone with any given farmer and think, I want to do whatever I can to help this person. Like that's not actually your job. Your job is to gather the facts and to try to report them in a way that is as accurate as you can manage. So it's hard. It's a hard, it's a hard balance to strike. Yeah. I can really relate to that and doing the advocacy work that we do. I think it's very similar that you hear stories from thousands of farmers around the country and you want to help each one of them individually. But I have to you know, continually remind myself that the work that we're doing on policy is about the structural change and the big picture and to keep focused on being that voice in DC. So I, I feel like I can relate to what you're just saying a lot. One of the other things I thought might be nice to hear you talk about was just how has the article been received and are people that getting the sense that people are talking about it yeah so it's always a challenge i find when i'm writing about agriculture like my editors and i talk about what we call quote the sad ag story which is just like every time you open a newspaper or a magazine if i see a picture of a farmer in farmland i'm like oh here we go it's going to be a sad ag story it's just it's all, it's about how like dairy farms are going. It's just thing after thing after thing. And it's all true, but there is, I think a certain, I think people just get inured to it. Like they see a picture of a farmer and they know what to expect. And they're like, I don't need this in my day. Um, so I mentioned that because I think every time I'm going into reporting another sad ag story, I think about how am I going to try to make this something that people want to read that isn't just a total like cry read. And, and I'm curious whether people will actually read it instead of just ignoring it because it's too sad. So I'm happy to say that I think that people did read this story. I've heard from my editor that they've gotten a really um, great response from it at the Times. It's the top of the most emailed list at one point on the New York Times website. It has, I think, a couple thousand comments. And I've been hearing from folks outside of the city that they've been hearing about the story. So that's all great. And I think I'm guessing as a result of the fact that it was a personal story and not just sort of data and facts, but told the stories of some young and I think very compelling people who are struggling with issues that we can all relate to on some level. So um, I'm going to try to write more of those in the future. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, it's so important. And I will say too, I, I read through some of the comments, not all, but I was curious. And I think at one point I got to a thread where there was some debate over the definition of feudal system. And I was like, okay, I think we're getting it. <laughs> it's pretty in the weeds. I, I was very, I have not looked through all the comments, but I did look at them um, at the beginning and they were, I thought, surprisingly empathetic and supportive. Not always what you end up finding in the comment section of stories. And this people, people seemed to be really empathizing with. You know, the other thing about, you know, the, the thing that sort of attracted me to this story, it's interesting that you mentioned how emotionally affecting it was. So often stories about farming are told through data and trends. Like, you know, this, this overall idea that it's very hard for young farmers, for beginning farmers to access farmland if they don't have it in their family. I knew that and I had seen stories about it. I think the problem sometimes is when you're writing a story that's all around the data and the national trend, it's really easy for people to tune it out. 
And this was an example of clearly the Hudson Valley is just one tiny little nook of America's agricultural landscape, but it was a way to make this larger story a little bit more personal and a little bit more real. To dig into that a little bit, and this the story that you wrote follows Maddie Morley, who was actually a staff at Young Farmers many a couple of years ago, and so someone who we all knew really well, and her partner Ben Roberts' really heartbreaking story of trying to build a pasture-based livestock operation. Many la- landowners didn't want to rent to them because they wanted the farm to look like a well-mowed lawn, and they had just had a really difficult time finding long-term land tenure. And Ben sadly passed away from cancer recently. And yeah, the story is just, it's completely heartbreaking. And we hear again and again about the unrealistic expectations of landowners and how astronomically expensive land is for those just starting out. And I think you do a really good job in the story of just laying that all out. And yeah, I was just curious if you could share a little bit more about the nuances between farmers' stories that you heard, if there were if there were differences that were emerging, because um, I think that's one thing that that we really understand in this work is that no, although there are these common themes of what farmers are facing in accessing land, there's also a lot of, of nuance in that. Absolutely. So I th- I spoke to around a dozen farmers reporting this, I think. And you know every story is unique, right? You don't necessarily think of it as a non-farming person, but especially in the Northeast, farmland is not uniform and the needs of the farmers are not uniform. So it's not like, you know, just a bunch of flat single acre plots and everybody's looking to do the same type of monoculture crop or or the same type of dairy or whatever. People all have their unique business models, their unique needs and the land is super heterogeneous. It's really <laughs> like every farm that's for sale is completely different from the farm that was for sale before it. So it is, I think, very challenging to match up the needs of an individual farmer with what happens to be on the market, even in a perfect world. But in terms of this sort of overall issues, let's start with the ones that it seems like everybody was facing, no matter what they were looking for. So on the buying side, land is just too expensive. It's just the math doesn't work. If you are a farmer who's looking to produce an agricultural product with the land, it's very difficult unless you're, you know, an heir to a fortune <laughs> to, to have the money readily available to sink into a piece of land. So you're obviously left trying to finance the land with some type of a loan. And in a system where you're competing against a city buyer who's buying a weekend property, they might have all cash as an offer, or they might have a traditional loan from a bank that they can put together really fast, like super fast financing. So the farmer, especially a young farmer, is probably using a loan through the USDA. The benefit of that is that the the rate is really low. So that's great for the farmer to not have to pay tons of unnecessary interest over a long term, but those loans take a really long time to to line up. So right there, even if a farmer feels like it's in their budget to afford a piece of land, the financing aspect can make them not a competitor for that farm because they just can't move fast enough. So like it it felt to me in, in reporting this story, like for all the farmers I spoke to, buying was so far off the table that they almost didn't even think to mention it to me as something that they were upset about. I had to be like, Oh, well, so was, was buying land an option? And they're like, oh, no, no, there wasn't, there's, there was no universe in which we were going to buy land. 
we didn't even start from that as a starting point. Besides actually Maddie and Ben were lucky enough to have some money that they thought they would be able to use for a down payment. And unfortunately the market just got so hot that they weren't even able to do that. But for most farmers in the Hudson Valley, young farmers buying is off the table. So then you get to the leasing question. And what I heard was historically, if you're a young farmer looking to lease land, you might find, let's say, an older dairy farmer who has part of his farm that he is not using and he's willing to lease. And since this is another farmer, you can have a sort of professional to professional conversation about what you need and what they have and form a lease, just a conventional lease, and maybe have a five or 10 year lease on that land for a price that you can afford. Not that those arrangements aren't available anymore, but more and more you are finding non-farming landowners who are advertising their farmland as available to lease. So maybe it's a young family that has moved up from Brooklyn and they've bought a 30 acre farm and they think it would be really nice to have a farmer farming this. And they don't really know what that means in practice. They've never been up close to agriculture. So those conversations from the get-go are really difficult to navigate because it's not a farmer saying, here's what I have to give. What would you like? It's just sort of a, a very messy, well, we sort of want a farmer. The landowner doesn't want to lock themselves into a long-term arrangement. They want to give themselves the flexibility to, to see how it goes, which is very difficult if you're starting a farm business to not have any idea whether you're going to be able to stay on that land for more than a year. There's also, you know, I write a lot in the story about what I call unrealistic aesthetic expectations, which is just, you know, farming doesn't look like a children's book farm where all the animals are adorable and there's one of each kind and everything is beautiful and perfectly maintained. It's like messy and it's loud and it's dirty and it's smelly. And those are things that kind of a, a, a non-farming landowner might not really expect. And then the last general bucket I would say is, and this is sort of funny, it's, I mean, funny, darkly funny one to me, but increasingly it seems like these second homeowner farm owners, want they come into it wanting to be involved in some way with the farm business. Like they, they sort of want to be weekend warriors with the farming. And so they are asking the young farmer, okay, if you set up your, your sheep to graze here, I kind of want to be a part of the business. So could we work that out somehow? And that's pretty uncomfortable for people who are, again, professional farmers who really don't want a novice weekender involved in their business, right? Um, the line that stood out to me the most in reading the article was this quote that one vegetable grower summed up the interaction as a modern day feudal system gussied up for Instagram. Yeah, such a to the point way to put it. Were there any stories that you heard from farmers that, that didn't make it into the piece that were either shocking or just really along that theme of what you were seeing of those unreal, unrealistic expectations from landowners that are really so much of the challenge in, involved in leasing? Yeah, man, I heard so much. I mean, I guess that the... the... The number one thing that I was hearing is, and, and this was sort of the, 
I guess the tricky thing about writing this story. None of the farmers felt, and in the, in the cases where I was talking to farmers who actually had actively put together a lease with a non-farming landowner, like they didn't think that those people were bad people. They didn't, they didn't feel like they were being purposely taken advantage of. It was just like two, two people coming from completely different points of view and each person thinking that they were being completely reasonable and the other person was being unreasonable. So like when I spoke to landowners, and I did actually speak to a number of landowners, the landowners would say, well, you know, I've sunk my own money into this property. I'm extending a very cheap lease to this farmer. Yeah, I have specific ideas about what I want it to look like because it's my property, but I feel like I'm giving this person an opportunity to farm land inexpensively that they wouldn't already have, they wouldn't otherwise have. And so, you know, I, I shouldn't like, that's a big give. And the farmer in the situation would say, I would, I would happily pay a little more if I could just have the independence to run my business how I want to and not have somebody looking over my shoulder all the time. And, you know, oh, when are you going to, when are you going to turn that compost? When are you going to get this piece of broken machinery somewhere? The grass is looking a little long. What's the deal there? And so it, what really struck me is like, this isn't, this is just a system that is never going to fully work. Even with a lot of education and even with everybody trying to put their best foot forward, what the landowner wants and what the farmer needs are just too far apart to really work in most cases. Once I realized that in reporting the piece, that's when I started looking into conservation easements. And Holly, I'm sure you're very familiar with conservation easements. So maybe you want to explain to people what they are. Yeah. So a conservation easement is Basically, it's a legal tool that can be used on to protect land from being developed, from being subdivided. There are conservation easements that are strictly about protecting habitat or viewshed, but then there are agricultural conservation easements that are particularly designed to ensure that a piece of land is able to continue being farmed while protecting it from development and what it does is essentially permanently removes the, the development rights from a, a piece of land and the landowner, the farmer is compensated for the difference in value of the land as a result, because it would be much more valuable in theory with the development rights on the land and much less valuable once they're removed. And, you know, one of the challenges that we've really focused in on, on easements as a coalition is that even once those development rights are removed, it really in a traditional easement doesn't say anything about who the owner is and who the steward of that land is into the future or the price that it has to be sold for. So when we see continued increasing competition for land as a rural estate or just a second home in the countryside or a place to be away from the city or you wanna try farming, but you're not a farmer, those are, as you're describing, individuals who are able to pay more. And so just having an easement that prevents it from becoming a housing development does not mean that it's affordable to farmers. So there are land trusts around the country that are working to put even stronger easements on land that protects it at its agricultural value, the value farmers would be able to afford, and says that there's priority for farmers to continue owning the land. And you, there's a number of land trusts that are 
even going further to, to say that there are, are maybe better ways, 99-year leases or long-term methods of gaining secure land access for farmers that kind of help move us away from this ownership model, which is kind of at the root of so much of the, of the challenges that young farmers face. So yeah, every five years, the National Young Farmers Coalition does a survey of young farmers and ranchers around the country. We just completed our third National Young Farmers Survey, and we got responses from 10,000 young farmers and ranchers around the country and are just getting the data back. And unsurprisingly, as we heard in the last two surveys, land access is still the top challenge that young farmers are facing. That's just a huge challenge. And the way in which this also intersects with the fact that over 80% of respondents named one of their primary purposes in farming as engaging in conservation or regeneration. I think we see that there's this real direct connection between young farmers being land stewards who are incorporating these practices of sustainability and climate resilience, but they don't have the land security they need to do that. These are, yeah, just a couple of the statistics that we're starting to see. And, and that survey will be coming out very soon and we'll have a whole bunch more data to share with everyone. But I could say more about that later, but. Yeah, I know. I'm curious because my reporting was really just focused on the Hudson Valley. And when we spoke as part of my reporting, we talked a little bit about other places in the country that are similar to the Hudson Valley in that the, the competition for land is largely from a second homeowner types versus investors or developers or other people who might be competing for farmland in other parts of the country. So I'm curious if like we could think of, about all of these questions in a national context. And what are you hearing from young farmers and BIPOC farmers about the, the challenges that they're facing um, in general around the country in terms of access to land? And I, I, I know it's not all second homeowners that are to blame. Yeah, I think the first thing to say is it's a trend that's happening around the country that young people who are looking for land are just unable to even find land that's for sale for the for one, agricultural land often changes hands without ever formally coming on the real estate market, so to speak. And so if you are not connected to communities of landowners, you really might miss out on even knowing that land is available. And with so many young people being first generation farmers and with such inequity in land ownership of it's 98% you know, of agricultural land is owned by white landowners. And in our land policy report from 2020, we talk about how this is really a direct result of our long history of oppressive policy related to land that was designed to create this outcome. And so there's a lot of inequity in just even who has an opportunity to purchase land when it is available. And then beyond that, it's really about location and finding a place where you're going to both be able to afford land, but also be close enough to the, the customers who you're looking to sell your product to as a farmer, especially for young farmers who are selling direct to consumers. Being closer to these urban centers is really important. So that unfortunately is the place where there's all this competition from non-farming buyers. There's a number of uh, rising concerns about 
not just non-farmer, like second homeowners who are buying land, but investors. And I think we saw Bill Gates really making the news a lot this last year of being the largest private landowner of farmland in the U.S. And that is, it's about investment. It's about betting on the speculative value of land. And just another thing that young people really can't compete with, and it's gone really fairly unchecked in, in this country. And when you're a young farmer, you're looking for land as both the place to be your home and your business. And it takes years to build up your customer base, to build soil quality, to implement practices that are going to build climate resiliency, which we know the majority of young people are farming that way and are interested in farming in a way that is sustainable and directly contributing to climate resiliency. But insecure land access is directly at odds with being able to do that. So yeah, and that's a huge topic that I didn't even get a chance to touch on in this story, but I've heard about in reporting other stories, which is that a lot of the choices that you want to encourage farmers to make, which are going to be really good long-term climate decisions, just really good for the planet, are not a good bet for the farmer if they have no idea whether they're going to be on the land in five or 10 years. Even something as simple as cover cropping, which can take a few years to really yield benefits in terms of soil fertility, like having a situation where farmers are leasing land in a non-secure way, short-term leases, is really at odds with those goals. This is not a good system from a climate perspective. And it's interesting. I also, you know, your point about Bill Gates, I won't say who said this, but in the course of my reporting, I talked to a landowner, actually more than one landowner who said, well, you know, I don't even think it's a good idea for young farmers to own their land. Like it is a lot of capital tied up in an illiquid investment and it's risky and it's probably really better for me to own it. And the farmer can, it can be less for them to worry about. It's something that they're not an expert in. And so there is this, I think, paternalism too of I'm don't trust the big financial stuff to me and the farmer should just focus on like the day-to-day -day work of farming. So that's a factor, I think. Yeah, I've heard that before too. There's this way in which when I was talking to reporters, a lot of reporters wanted to talk about this fact that Bill Gates owned all this farmland and why has this happened? Why is this happening? And I said to them, said, look, if it makes sense. If you're in the position of Bill Gates and there's nothing stopping you from buying this farmland, it is on paper a good investment. And like you're hearing this landowner saying that, yes, of course, owning land is risky and expensive and very difficult for young people. And these things are true. <laughs> and the question we need to ask is, well, are they right? And are they just? And are they equitable? And I think the answers to those questions are resoundingly no. And that's why we work on policy to say, how can we make it possible for it to be true that you can have the long-term security that you need as a young farmer while we reduce the risk that they undertake in order to have that security? And, and I think- So this is where the 1 million acres campaign comes in, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, as a coalition, are very focused on the 2023 Farm Bill as a major opportunity to- influence and change policy related to land in this country. The Farm Bill comes around once every five years or so, and it is 
an incredibly important piece of legislation. It's where all of our crop insurance money and subsidy money is determined, conservation programs, farm loan programs, as well as, yeah, SNAP and other nutrition programs like that. So, you know, this is a really important piece of legislation for us. And I think historically, this legislation has really undervalued the importance of land security for farmers. We've seen a lot of funding put towards what happens if there's a disaster or what happens if market values go down and farmers are struggling, but there hasn't been as much focus on how do we just get farmers to have the security they need to long-term be able to incorporate these climate resilient practices and, and be secure in building their own markets locally. So the 1 million acres campaign is it's a campaign to ask Congress to make a historic investment in equitable access to land for young farmers and for BIPOC farmers around the country. This is an ask to see Congress invest two and a half billion dollars over the 10 year budgetary cycle of the farm bill in equitable land access. And with the goal that this will make 1 million acres of land accessible to young and BIPOC farmers and in a way that's secure and affordable. We're working with partners to build the platform and with our young farmer members around the country to talk to their members of Congress to make these asks. Um, we want to make it possible for community-led land access projects to access federal funding, and particularly to see this funding go to projects that support land access for farmers of color who have experienced so much land dispossession as a result of federal policies and who have historically received just much less of the federal dollars that come out through the farm bill over and over again. And we've seen these connections between policy and land loss in communities of color. So that's a really important foundational piece of this campaign is saying, how can we make sure that our how we're spending money on farmers and on farmland access is done in a way that considers this historical track record and increases opportunity for young BIPOC farmers. So these, these hypothetical um, farm bill dollars, when you say that they would go towards land access, local land access projects, would this look something like land trusts and conservation easements, like a similar type of a structure where a land trust can buy farmland and then have a, a long-term affordable lease that goes to a farmer? Or what are some examples of what that funding would fund? I think that's a great way to describe it is in many ways, what we're trying to do is very similar to what some of the conservation easement funding programs do at USDA currently, where there's a pool of money land trusts, local municipalities, tribal entities can apply and use that money for conservation easements. The thing that we're trying to do that's a bit different here is recognizing that not all projects that are creating land security for young farmers and farmers of color involve a conservation easement or would be eligible for that program. That program has a lot of requirements around acreage size and soil quality. And it's really inapplicable in urban contexts, but there's a lot of really important land access 
projects that need to happen that are not just on the highest quality, largest acreage farmland. For example, there might be a, say like a church that has some extra land and they are creating a program that would enable young farmers, young BIPOC growers to learn about farming and to have some land access opportunity and to have long-term security there. And there's an opportunity for that church to buy some additional acreage or to really maybe create a cooperative structure so those farmers could own the land themselves. But they need money. They need money to pay lawyers, to buy the land, to build a little infrastructure, all these things that there's currently really not a great way for them to access federal dollars. So that's the kind of thing this new program could fund. We could imagine a municipality seeing, for instance, a dairy farm going out of business and saying, as a municipality, we want to buy this land and think of it as a local economic development project, a climate resiliency project. And we want to make, we want to split up the 200 or 400 acres into five to 10 acre plots that young farmers can have 30, 40 year leases on that kind of project um, or something in an urban context where, you know, land values are really extreme. But, um, being able to secure a lot from development could provide food for, yeah, for hundreds of families that live in close walking distance to that acreage. I'm also curious how many of these nonprofits, like how widespread is the network of land trusts and nonprofits that would be able to absorb this funding and to pass it through? Is that an infrastructure that really needs to be built out or is it just there and waiting for money? The, the last that I knew the statistic, I think there were a little over 2000 land trusts around the country and they do tend to be concentrated in areas that are mainly on the coasts or have high population centers. And so I think it's not just looking at right at land trusts and nonprofits, but also looking at local governments, because there are local governments everywhere. And how can those entities, how can tribal governments, those be some of the entities that can facilitate these projects. We're still figuring out all the policy mechanisms for this with our partners, but to what degree can farmer-owned cooperatives be eligible as well? We're seeing increasing interest from young farmers in communal or cooperative farming ventures. And so I think making sure that our USDA programs really respond to that and catch up to that interest from farmers that cooperatives have been around forever and have been a really important structure, particularly in the Black farming community and wanting to make sure that our government programs are accessible to farmers farming in that way. Another thing I would just add to, to the role of policy that policy has played in the current inequity in land access is that often people say that oh, we can't, we can't really do anything about the private property system or land ownership, or there's a lot of resistance to making changes through policy to how we own and transfer land. But I would say that if you spend even just a few minutes understanding the history of our federal policy and land, it's really clear that we have used policy in that way. Even before there was a U.S. government, there was a concept of land ownership that was tied to the ability to vote and to be a landowner you had to be white and so therefore 
to be able to vote and create these policies related to land, that was only an opportunity that was open to white people at the time. And from there, we just see that there have been policies that were directly taking land. There was over a billion acres of land that Indigenous people stewarded that the U.S. government was directly responsible for redistributing and dispossessing those people of. And we've seen policies that have prevented ownership of land for certain races of people in the early 1900s with the alien land laws. We've seen just laws being used to prevent access to mortgages for in, in redlining and particularly for Black individuals. And so I think there's just multiple ways in which policy has really directly been used to affect who has the opportunity to build generational wealth in land. And, and that continues implicitly today with the fact that so many of our federal programs are designed to benefit existing landowners. And so we just, we see this continued kind of implicit benefit to the 98% white land ownership. So the mandate, I would say, is there for our federal policy to affect land. And the responsibility is absolutely there for us to do so in a way that builds more equity and justice into who has that opportunity. You're not proposing that there be policy put in place that restricts people's ability to continue to own the land that they would like to continue to own or changes who they're able to sell it to or the terms under which it's being sold. Or We're not talking about policy that limits people, landowners' rights. We're talking about funding that helps in cases where landowners want to be able to make these types of transitions, but it's economically not in their best interest currently to do it, right? And there's lots of examples like that where, you know, a landowner who, for whatever reason, doesn't want to continue to own their agricultural land would love to sell it to another farmer, but is just, I'm not going to, this is my retirement fund, and I can't sell it to another farmer and lose 70% of the value it would gain on the open market. So this is really just funding to help change that people are making voluntarily. Yeah, absolutely. Like we talk about this moment as a crisis of land access and transition, which it absolutely is. But I think exactly, we also really need to talk about the opportunity that's there and the opportunity to invest in this next generation, to invest in all young farmers and to really invest in bringing more young farmers of color into this opportunity. And that the ways in which that benefits existing landowners, it benefits people, anyone who eats, it benefits our communities. As this, we see this moment nationally of millions of acres of land predicted to change hands in the next decade, it's a huge moment of opportunity to make a change. And I guess last question on the 1 million acres campaign, how is it going so far? I know that farm bill negotiations are just starting to heat up. So we have as part of the campaign, a 100 farmer land advocacy fellowship that we launched in this spring of this year. And this is a two-year fellowship where these 100 farmers are gaining advocacy training, press and media training, and they're also getting opportunities to directly connect with their members of Congress. So in April, we did 32 in-district meetings with members of Congress with 39 farmers across the country. 
we're planning 70 meetings for August. And we are also planning the largest ever, as far as I know, young farmer fly-in to Washington, D.C., specifically focused on land policy for next March of 2023. So those are all some really exciting aspects of the campaign. At the same time, we're just continuing to have conversations with congressional offices to find champions for marker bill legislation for this kind of uh, placeholder text that would go into the farm bill. So we're looking for champions right now. We're testifying to Congress in farm bill hearings. Two of our land fellows have written testimony for, for their members of Congress for the Senate and House Agricultural Committees. And yeah, we're going to just continue getting the word out. But it's this is the number one challenge that young farmers are facing. We're at a crisis point. Farmers cannot keep just hoping for some kind of land security to become possible for them. We need federal intervention. We need tax dollars to address this issue. There's no time to, to wait. Well, I'm wishing you guys the best of luck in pushing this through. I think personally, two and a half billion dollars in the scope of the entire, how many, how many, how big is the farm bill? It's enormous, right? Like I know it includes SNAP and lots of big programs, but it's an absolutely enormous dollar wise piece of legislation. So I'm more than on board with two and a half billion to one yeah. million acres. <laughs> two and a half billion is just, it's 0.3 percent of the 867 billion that was projected to be the 10-year spending in the 2018 farm bill and just four pocket change basically of, yeah of the conservation programs so yeah. if people want to get involved in the campaign the best way is to sign up for updates and action alerts you can go to p2a.co slash land or text land to 40649. And we'll be sending out updates. We'll be letting you know when Congress is taking action on the farm bill. We'll be giving you ways to engage in asking for this really important change. Thank you so much, Liz. I really appreciate you talking to me today about this issue and for your reporting and bringing light to the challenges that so many young people are facing. I was happy to be able to do it and happy to be here today. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the National Young Farmers Coalition's One Million Acres for the Future campaign to transition farmland to the next generation through historic investment in the 2023 Farm Bill, visit our site youngfarmers.org land or text land to 40649 to join our action network. You can also hear more about the land access challenge for young farmers on our past episode of the Young Farmers podcast, Who Owns U.S. Farmland? Liz also co-hosts the podcast Pressure Cooker, a show for parents looking for better answers when it comes to how they feed their kids. This show was edited by Hannah Beal and is a production of the National Young Farmers Coalition. To learn more about young farmers and become a member, visit us at youngfarmers.org slash join.